and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Welcome to another episode of Lunching with Lawyers. Today I'm in Melbourne, in Port Melbourne, in fact, overlooking the lovely, uh, what is it, the lovely views of the skyline of central Melbourne. And um, with me today is Paul Bingham, who's a barrister and has practised at the Victorian Bar since 1991. He was admitted in 1982 and practices principally in commercial law. Paul is the co-author of the Credit Handbook and a contributor to Fitzroy Legal Service Handbook. He practices in superannuation and social security law and was a member of the Social Security Appeals Tribunal and the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal. Paul has previously been a financial counsellor, solicitor, university lecturer and ministerial ministerial advisor. In 2013, he was awarded the 2013 Victorian Bar Pro Bono Trophy for his extraordinary commitment to advocacy for low-income and vulnerable consumers. I first met Paul in Western Australia when my principal, Emma Swart, asked Paul to assist her with the Westpac civil penalty case. Paul made quite an impression on a young lawyer, not just because of his extraordinary legal brain, but because he took Emma and I to the Ansett Lounge in Perth Airport. Do you remember that, Paul Binger? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Welcome, Paul. Uh, thanks, Loretta. Uh, Paul, you must have been one of the first financial counsellors in the state. What an unusual transition, financial counsellor to commercial barrister in a relatively short time. No, not at all. It was financial counselling that took me back to the law. Really? Why? Because I hated uh, studying law. I hated the way I was taught law. Everything about law repelled me. It was the instrument of oppression, basically. And so why did you, where did you go to university then and why did you form that? I went to Melbourne Uni. Mm. And, and so what was it about their teaching at Melbourne University that particularly peeved you? Look, I, 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 I don't blame Melbourne Uni for the way it taught. In fact, I went back there and taught myself, mm-hmm. which is an odd thing to do considering I hated it. But um, I did go back there and uh, uh, I, I um, was given Zelman Cowan's old room which is, had a fantastic view over the quad. <laughs> that was the best thing about going back to Melbourne Uni because the worst thing was doing the teaching. In the science theatre, like 200 students sitting mm. in the aisles, I had to have a, a microphone to bellow up at them. Uh, not the way 
I think law needs teaching. When I, uh, the very first class I did at Melbourne Uni, I, w- I walked into like a, like a little study theatre, 40 people in there. Sandy Clark, who is a, a terrifying individual, um, and he, he, an expert in riparian law. Riparian law? Yeah. Uh, oh, agriculture. Yeah. Taking of water from rivers and the like. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm. Unusual specialty. But I, 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 I loafed in there with a cigarette. I was, I was thinking, I thought it was cool. Anyway, and he stamped on me very quickly, which was exactly the right thing to do. But, I mean, the problem with um, the teaching of law, I, I thought, was that it was so impersonal. Mm, I don't think it was very practical. Like, it, it didn't strike me as very practicable, uh, practical and I think I really I remember doing I remember doing a subject called on the Credit Act in Sydney uh, University of Sydney, and I thought, ah, oh, this is so dry because I think they were just talking about civil penalties or the um, you know linked credit provider provisions. And when we actually practiced in that area, we hardly used though at well particularly for individuals. We hardly use those sections, well, link credit provider sections, um, as such. And I well, I did. Well, well, I mean, I still use them sometimes, occasionally. I think it's a very, not a very well used section of the credit code, um, is the link credit provider sections, mm. and they've sort of fallen by the wayside. Yeah, because all these all these things have an expiry date. The credit mm. credit act litigation essentially had an expiry date when they changed when mm. they changed the act. Yeah. But before that, I was doing quite a lot of Section 85 applications mm. and, you know, they ended up, a lot of them being court of appeal cases. Yeah. Uh, look, it was... But certainly the way that they taught it at um, the law school, I thought, gee, who would want to... Who would want to practise in this area? Yeah. They just made something that could be... Quite useful to consumers, quite boring. Yeah, because what it lacks is uh, the passion and social justice that's behind it. Mm. So how did you get to law school in the first place? Why did you want to go to law school? Look, um, I come from the UK Mm. and my family was low middle class, aspiring to be middle class through education. And my father... Left school at 14, he went to be a chemist's boy and then he joined the army. Um, And when he came back from the army, that was after the war, and the only job he could get was knocking on doors selling brushes. He worked Mm. himself up and eventually uh, had this little invention and tried to run a small business, complete failure. The whole family was involved in this small business, it completely failed. Uh, but through all of that, he was an autodictat, he taught himself, and he was. there was one thing that he was very firm about, and that is education. And so my father pushed me uh, all the way through school, and so when I got to university, um, I, you know, I'm, in, inside me there's an artist <laughs> wanting to get out, <laughs> Uh, I wanted to do literature and law, uh, uh, literature and um, 
he 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 told me, I, you know, he made a bargain with me. I had to do law as well. So that's how I did law. Now, I mean, it it, it was not a natural fit for me because uh, since I was 13, 14, 15, living in England, I I was always appalled by the by the by the class system mm. and by the inequities that the class system imposes and uh, you know I, I I give no indication of this today but like most people at heart I'm a rebel <laughs> and you know I was a rebel but like yeah you know, I by age 15, I'd read both volumes of Das Kapital, for example. Mm. So, you know, I had a very strong passion about uh, the inequities of the class system. And that was mm. one, of, one of the reasons I left England. One of the reasons you left England? I thought you were, your family came to Australia. We, or... we, we came when I was... 16, mm. and we all had our different reasons. Like uh. the reason my father came was he'd been unemployed for two years, mm. which is a hard thing for a family man. Yeah, of course. But you would have had the choice of staying in England. Yeah. Because you were already 16, and so you were. We all made our. My, my sister didn't come to begin with. Ah. So we all had our separate choices. Mm. And you decided to come because of that reason. Well, because I I could not stomach um, the way the world was set up. All right. Yeah, fair enough. And I I put a lot of the blame for that on the class system. Now, the class system is a, is a, in, in essence, it's an economic analysis. It is about how resources get shared amongst, you know, the people that could share them. Mm. Um, and so when I, my, my father told me I had to do law, I, I buckled down and I did it. Uh, and I came out the other end, but then I walked away from it. Ah, so you walked away from But how did you then get into financial counselling? Well, I came back from India. I was, I was you know, I'd been in, in, in you South East Asia. <laughs> I, I, can't, I, I was away for a couple of years and I came mm. back and, uh, you know, I needed a job. And so I saw a job as a financial counsellor at the North Melbourne Parish because that's where the, where the job was located. Yes. And? And so I got the job wearing my father's safari suit. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I had never suit, though. So. Did you know what a financial counsellor was? No, I read the ad, but... <laughs> Uh, but uh, I knew it. I knew that was that was me. You know, to act, ha- helping low-income people with financial problems. So that was the way that they advertised it, and yeah. it was really up to you how you tackled helping people with yeah. um, financial problems. Yeah, and, and I went about it in in some silly ways. For example, I made a I made a, a, a video. <laughs> it got, got played on SBS. Uh, I, I remember. I remember one thing that I did, which was another complete failure. Although the video was actually quite good, but you know, how's that going to help low-income people in retrospect? Mm. 
Well, I, I, I bought this enormous fish and cooked this enormous fish and invited all of the people from the flats around to consume this fish and, like, you know, nobody turned up. <laughs> so I was pretty inept. But one uh, thing I could see was that uh, the law was used as, as an instrument of oppression by debt collectors. So it was debt collectors more than anything? More well, than credit than providers, debt, debt collectors... Credit providers and debt collectors go together, but the reason it was it was located at, at the North Melbourne Parish was because of um, you know the history of mm. Linda Blundell. I was really the second uh, generation of financial counsellors. The first generation were the were the the real volunteer activists like Linda Blundell, uh, and they had got a bit of funding, and uh, yeah, I I was. I was the second. It, it, yeah. I was the second financial counsellor. There was somebody else there, so I was the second one. Um, and the, the the people who were on the committee there were fantastic. Uh, was that about the same time that Carolyn Bond started financial counselling? Yeah. Well, she started uh, elsewhere, but we were all. At the same time. Uh, we, were all, we all started around the same time. Because she said when she started there was only five of five financial councils across the state mm. in Victoria. So you must have been like one of the first paid ones yeah. in Victoria. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty pretty special. Is that why you met up with Dennis Nelthorpe? At, because of that? Uh, sort of financial counselling. Yeah. You see, because we started at... at uh, a network or an association, and Carolyn was married to Dennis, mm. and uh, the, the the department who were funding it brought people together to do various parts of training, mm. and through that, I met my wife, who's uh, was also a financial counsellor up in Brunswick Coburg. So I was in North Melbourne; she was in Brunswick Coburg, and like the four of us had a common vision, which is essentially uh, to use the law to fight for low-income rights. I know that you and Dennis and a group of you established the Consumer Credit Legal Service in Victoria, but did you work for Holding Red Lynch before that? Holding Red Lynch, yeah. Yeah, before that. Yeah. So is that where you did, like, your practical legal training or...? No, I went to Leo Cousin. Yeah, yeah, um, Leo Cousin. But then I went to Holding Redley mm. and it was situated in the Metal Workers Building. Yeah. And so because of that connection, Consumer Credit Legal Service started in, in the... Well, it, was in, it was in a community centre, but when, when we got funding, we went, we went, we were in the metal workers building, so where, which was handy because when the when the when the car dealers came around to punch me up, there was big metal worker guys <laughs> who could hold them off. <laughs> mm. I can imagine some of them wanted to punch you. Yeah, you know, because it was quite. It would have been quite shocking for them for the first time to be challenged in their practices mm. and they would have been able to bully people before that mm. and intimidate them and here are these, you know, a couple of young lawyers coming along and trying to tell them how they should run their businesses. So Well, it wasn't only a couple. We had um, a, a big group of, of volunteers. Yeah. yeah. There would have been, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 of us. At, 
ones volunteer and paid people. Did you go from doing financial counselling and thinking, no, I really want to go back to the law based on that, and that's when you went to hold... hold? No, I, I only went... I, I was a financial counsellor for two years, and yeah. we started Consumer Credit Legal Service as a voluntary organisation. Yeah, in that period. So, in that period. And so I was working there and I could see what I could do. So I, I then decided to go back and get qualified. So I went back and um, did my did, did what was necessary and got a job at Holding Ready to get some, some start. So I was there for about a year, year and a half. Uh, and by that time, there was enough money for a place for me at at a paid position at the Consumer Credit Legal Service. All right. Oh, thanks, because it's just such a wonderful history to, of, about the Consumer Credit Legal Service in Victoria, um, about how those things start. Um, you and Dennis, though, are very... I know that it was you and Dennis... Who was there at that first meeting um, that sort of established when you decided that you wanted to, to establish... Can't the remember. Cons- Can't remember, but... I mean, look, there were there were a group of us, but I think probably the central people were were Dennis Carroll and myself and, and Bev. Mm. Uh, there was also Dick Gross. Uh, there was others. Mm. You and Dennis are, are very different personalities, yeah. like from an outsider's point of view. Um, do you think that worked well in the early days of the Consumer Credit Legal Service? Well, yes. Um, you see, Dennis uh, has a wide vision. Mm. He, uh, he, he focuses on the systems, the policies. Now, now, for me, I have always been focused on the, the victim. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So the individual... Yeah. Is, is most critically important when you're looking at uh, the law and seeing how you can help the individual that's there in front of you. Mm. So it's that marrying together of somebody who's got the vision mm. and somebody who... Uh, interesting. How was Dick? Because you and Dennis were really... And I know that in the early stages, and I was just looking at some of the vision, uh, some of the... TV stuff about the first AFCO um, uh, campaign, and Dick was speaking on yeah. uh, TV. But he, but really, um, it ended up, I think, to a certain extent, being you and Dennis that were the face of that organisation. Was it because you stayed there longer, or well, Dick uh, was brilliant in. Um, in attracting attention, mm. and uh, he had some uh, some great ideas about how to put ideas into the community. Mm. Um, but a lot of the success of the legal s- service uh, comes as well from the casework that we did. For sure. And that was because the Consumer Credit Legal Service was established just after the 1984 Credit Act came in, was it? Um, Well, we went through 
two, two versions, three versions of the Credit Act, uh, but uh, it was a, 1981. Oh, right. Okay. Was the first bill came through. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and so when the Act came in, we were making new law, in essence. Yeah, it was really new law. I was going to say the legislation included many individual rights for borrowers but had two features that I think were really instrumental in changing lender behaviour. One was the ability of consumers to object to the issuing of a credit licence. The other was the civil penalty regime. You started a credit licence objection with Dennis Nelthorpe against a multinational company known at the time as HFC Financial Services in 1988. What made you do something crazy like that? Well... Um, in order that people listening to this today will have never heard of HFC. Mm. Yes. That was the reason to get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why did we do it? Well, because there was a network of financial councils around there and we could see we had some really good material. Now, uh, this case took over my life it ran for a year Mm. and against me I had two QCs and three juniors Uh, so amongst that group there were three future judges including Court of Appeal, Supreme Court and Federal Court Oh so who was involved on the other side of that? Who? So it was Stephen Charles who was Mm. leading Silk at that time You'll still see him on the TV uh, advocating for uh, transparency. Mm. He's part of Transparency International. Uh, a very nice man, but I hated him back then. David Habersberger, who was Supreme Court judge. Uh, again, a very nice man, but I hated him back then. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there were three juniors as well, mm. all of whom, you know, very reasonable people, but I hated them as well. Well, I can imagine because... Um, it would have been so much extraordinary stress for you and Dennis. It was, uh, um, look, my final submission, I worked night and day on that for, for weeks and weeks. It was three lever arch folders. Wow. That's a big final submission. This this case had everything. But like, um, you know, I was, um, I was about to start cross-examination of the main... Of the of the, the the head of HFC, and um, the door opens and in walks the Solicitor General. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, the Solicitor General pushed me to one side, started to cross examine David Wilson. I'm going, what? What's happening? <laughs> he. Uh, but the, the tribunal had organised him to come, hadn't told me. Uh, and so it was Hartog Barclay, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a well-known silk, but um, he, he, he comes in and uh, punches this guy up, something fierce, calls him a liar and a criminal. And I don't think he had much actual basis <laughs> for it, but he gave him a fierce punching, as, as a result of which when... He, he, he stalked off uh, uh, and I started my cross-examination. I had a much tamer witness. 
So I had that. Uh, we had, um, as I said, this this case I went on for a, uh, the hearing was uh, went on for a year. Uh, about nine months in, I got a phone call from uh, two ex-employees of HFC who are so fed up with what they'd been see, been seeing mm. that they spilled the beans. As a result of which, um, the it, it came out that the tribunal had called for all this material from HFC and HFC had produced it, but in fact, some senior executives had weeded out the worst of the the worst of the staff, and this came out in court. Would have been pretty shocking. What were, like, what were some of the, I mean, we would know what some of the egregious practices were, but what were the things that really um, made their behaviour so egregious? Uh, well, it was, a, it was a mixture of harassment, debtor harassment, mm. um, and um, exploitative practices with insurances, failing to rebate insurance. A lot of the stuff that you hear from the Royal Commission it's the same stuff that happened back then. A failure to rebate insurances, um, uh, insurance forcing, probably. Uh, yeah, mm. they had an associated insurance company, Heritage, and that you had to buy Heritage insurance. Um, uh, it just went on and on and on. And you're right about that. Some of the practices went away, but they've always, they seem to come back up. It, it's cyclical. And each time you're having to fight to get rid of those practices again mm. and again. But I do think over time it has got a bit easier to stop those practices going on for years and years because HFC had been operating for a very long time in that manner. Hadn't they? And in the States. Yeah, and mm. do you think it had any effect on their operations in the States? I don't know. No. And how was that matter resolved? Paul? They lost their licence. Yeah, and did they ever get it back? No. Well, you, you that's yeah. what I said. You, you, you don't hear of them. They no. were. They were the. They were. It's today's grand final day. They were the sponsors of Hawthorne Football Club. Oh. Right. So that 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 shows how Power. major. That they were. Um, mm. you, don't, um, you don't see them. On the all. exploitation of vulnerable consumers. Mm. Really, it was really bad. And do you think that buy now, pay later products aim, uh, schemes impose the same risks as companies such as HFC? Clearly, because if, you, if you've got a pay later, you haven't got the wherewithal. No. <laughs> I mean, how simple is that? Mm, no, I, look, I, I think the difference with buy now, pay later is that they're even more under the radar because they're not regulated at all. Exactly. So um, to me, that's one of the things that is really problematic about them. At least with HFC, you have the opportunity to go and have a go in court with them. Buy now, pay later. You really, oh, Well, in the tribunal, buy now, pay later, you really... I mean, if if you don't have any... Um, external dispute resolution or going to the ombudsman, you're really left in a court system which is just unaffordable to all the consumers we deal with. 
Um, of course, the other part of that legislation was the civil penalties regime. Yeah. Um, and that was also important to consumers. I don't think people realised how important it was initially. What was it? The civil penalties regime. What was it? Yeah, what was it? Well, I know what it was. Well, <laughs> uh, well um, I mean, it, it's essentially a, a fine of part of the... The credit charge. Yeah. So you lost all your, it, in a sense, you lost all of your credit charges um, if you made technical breaches of the act and you had to apply to court to get those credit charges back. That's was, the, that was the theory. In, was, in fact, the worst you could do was lose 10%. Mm, but it, 10% was a lot. 10% is a lot, but it's not what the law said. No, no. <laughs> because the law said you could, you would lose all of it. Yeah, mm. that's that's the default position. And how were those cases? So the cases were, because that's why you came over to Western Australia, yeah. because you were helping the Consumer Credit Legal um, Service in Western Australia yeah. um, run their, well, um, Westpac had brought civil penalty proceedings to you know, get their interest back, so yeah. to speak. And because Western Australia had their, didn't quite have, I think you had to make an application in Western Australia and you could, in the other states they had... Yeah, mutual recognition. Yeah. yeah. So you had to go over there. So, yeah. So it, and how were those cases run? Can you remember how those cases were run? Like it was just basically by negotiations, didn't we do it? A lot of well, there is, um, uh, I mean, th there were negotiations going on, but it, essentially it's a court determination. Yeah. So if you present the court with a, an agreed position, uh, obviously that's easy. But um, yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them uh, as, as I said before, went to the Court of Appeal because there's a lot of money involved. Mm. Um, and... There was a good rash of them for a while, but uh, we, it, I think we the historical lost, fact, really, by now. I think we really lost ground in a sense with the nineteen ninety six legislation. Um, absolutely, uh, when once that act came through, the litigation stopped mm. because before that, I was doing unjust contract litigation. Uh, the 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 eighty sixes, the 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 um, the, the license objections, but mm. by that time, um, really the empire had struck back. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. No, that's what it, precisely what happened. I I was so, I, I remember I because I was quite a junior lawyer at the time. I remember thinking, oh, the, all this rubbish about disclosure was going to fix the world and yeah. that people had, um, you know, equal bargaining power and it, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and, yeah, I think we really lost a lot of ground. And I, I think we have got it back in the sense because everybody has to, the licence, the fact that you have to be a member of an ombudsman scheme has been a really powerful thing for a lot of consumers because at least they've had some access because we were never going to have enough lawyers to help everybody go through a hearing or tribunal. 
So uh, that's personally what I think. Even though I do think when we first started having the Ombudsman, I wasn't that impressed, but I certainly think that now it's I would always send my clients there. A lot of the work I do, well, some of the work mm. I do these days is AFCA appeals. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the quality of the decision-making is variable. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think that there is a lot of work to be done um, in making sure that the um, decisions are are not as variable and the other thing is because of the um because they have a remit about superannuation it's a lot of money involved in those um in those decisions and they really they can make a huge difference to individuals lives so i think that they, that's one thing that they could really work on in getting their decisions a bit more legally based for sure well i think it's problematic that the tests for superannuation and non-superannuation are so radically different. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, um, with the superannuation appeals, you've got an appeal on the question of law, in mm. essence. In the, in the non-superannuation appeals, what you've got is uh, Wensbury unreasonableness, which is a, a much tougher test. Mm. It's because of why the legislation works. Okay. Yeah. I. Right. I. Yeah. I. I'm a big fan of the. Mm. <laughs> um. What made you? But we can talk a little bit more about that later. I, I was just going to ask you about the state attorney general asking you to be a ministerial advisor. Was that around that time of the HFC? Yeah, that was because of the success of the HFC. Mm. I mean, HFC was a big thing. It was. It was it was uh, the main headline the next day in the in the age, which is a pretty big thing. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so I got offered this job um, being ministerial advisor. And you took it. I took it. By and there, by that time, I'd been doing that work for five years, and you know, thought it was time to do something. Yeah. And so is that when you, like, how long were you doing that? Not, not that long because it was the Kerner government, which was a weak government, mm. and uh, there were reshuffles. There was reshuffles going on. It was the tram strike. It was the, the government was kind of in chaos. Uh, but um, I did get an interesting look at the, the way in which government. the government applies its applies its pressure to the court system. Oh. <laughs> um, and so is that what made you decide to go to the bar then? <laughs> Your uh, experience as a minister? Well, I, 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 well, yeah, you see, what happened is that my minister got reshuffled and, and the new minister didn't want me. Uh, I, he went. He got reshuffled into planning and got no interest in or no experience in planning. So th at that time... Yeah, then I went to the university. Unsurprisingly, didn't like that. Uh, but then I went to the bar. And um, that's to get... So when you went to the bar back in 1991, is that when you started work, working with John Barrels? Pretty no, much when I went to the bar, I was doing... I started off doing 
basically credit credit commercial stuff, uh, 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 guarantors acting for people who. Um, there was a, there was a lot of cases uh, of mortgagees mm. who um, def- were either defrauded by their spouses or or who um, had had over commitment issues. So there were there were a big rash of cases of people who, who were trying to fight the banks. So I was doing a lot of that. Because it really wasn't like it. the ombudsman in those days was pretty ineffective in helping with those sorts of matters. Mm. And you really had to take those matters to court if you wanted to have any chance of succeeding and saying that the way the behaviour of the lender was the reason why um, you couldn't pay or they shouldn't have given you the loan in the first place. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but at one stage, because you are seen as you and John Beryl, I think, are the pioneers in the practice of assisting consumers seeking to claim on their insurance policies in superannuation, and you've built and you have built a substantial reputation based on this work. What drew you to that area of work, superannuation? Um, John, John rang me up and asked me to do it. And how did you know John? Uh it was. I I didn't really know John. It was. I think he got my name from another of the partners there. Uh huh. That was that was when it was at Morris Blackburn. At Morris Blackburn. What yeah. were some of the early issues in that superannuation insurance work? The issues then are the same issues now. And what are they? And the the fundamental issue is that. Insurers write the policies so that the benefit is payable on the formation of an opinion by the insurer as to their disability. Yeah. And what you have to do first is challenge the formation of or the non-formation of that opinion. So if you've got eight doctors who are saying the person's disabled and one who is saying the person's not disabled, <laughs> then if the insurer forms the opinion that they prefer the opinion of the person who says they're not disabled, then you are not entitled to the benefit unless you can show that that decision was an unreasonable decision. Indeed, back then, the formulation was so unreasonable that no reasonable insurer could make it, which is essentially another form of Winsbury unreasonableness test. Mm. So that is the fundamental issue in, in, in disablement insurance. But there are so many issues as there are in any area of the law. All, all areas of the law are the same, and they, they all have the same problems. And, and if you stay in the one area of the law long enough, you will come across every other problem that there is. But in this particular area of law, um, uh, f- for example, I've done cases in relation to, to the proper construction of trust deeds. So, for example, uh, does an employer have to pay uh, superannuation on a recall payment for doctors? So there's those kinds of issues. There's issues 
there is an uh, there is an ongoing fight between insurers and insureds, let's say, uh, uh, about insurers uh, trying to prevent people getting pay pay payouts. Well, mm. you know that's what it's all about. So, for example, they've invented this form of uh, definition because this, this work is all about definitions, mm. right? The form of this definition it goes like this. You have to have, in order to get it paid, paid a benefit, you have to have a waiting period, and the waiting period only starts when the date of disablement occurs. And the date of disablement only occurs when the a doctor writes a certificate to the effect that you suffer from the relevant disablement. Now, that sounds okay, except that most people, when they're sick and they aren't able to work, they don't go to their doctors and get a, a certificate saying they're disabled. That happens like months later. And by the time they go and get the certificate, which is months later, the insurer says, well, that month later, that's the date of disablement. And in order to get this benefit, you have to have been working in the, six, six, in, in the three months leading up to that. And you weren't working in the three months before that date of disablement. So there's all sorts of Tricks essentially to to squeeze people out of out of out of the benefit. And has has the has the law changed in that area, or how's how's the jurisprudence been developed in there? Because right, well, it's it's been quite interesting because when I started, there was no law. Yes, and and the and the very first um, substantial case that was run. We lost, surprise, surprise, um, on appeal. But we won at the first instance before a very good judge, David Byrne, uh, and and uh, it's essentially an outworking of trust law. But over the years since that time, the the judges and the equity division of the New South Wales Supreme Court has been princip the principal mover in this. Has, uh, ha has developed a, juris a jurisprudence which has essentially made it much, much more of a balanced approach. So as I said earlier, it used to be the case that you had to prove that the decision was so unreasonable that no reasonable insurer would make it. Mm. And, but over time, that's become an unreasonable decision. Uh-huh. Yes, you know the, the subtlety in that change is quite considerable, but significant. Yes, of course. And has there, like, because of your work, has there been any law reform in that area? Well, um, yes and no. As with the Credit Act, the Insurance Contracts Act uh, for, is is an act that's fought over. So. The Act is a product of Justice Murphy, as mm. many of uh, many other things are. And so that was a great reformation of the common law of insurance. Uh, for its time, it was astounding. And we equally well, apart from various things, well written. Now... Um, being the person I am, 
I found various technicalities inside <laughs> that act, especially as I'm pointing, I'm yeah. pointing to the act <laughs> behind Loretta, you see. Um, especially in view of uh, what was occurring in the market, which was that insurers um, were selling wholesale insurance through the newly developed superannuation mm. um, industry. Uh, and so the there is a big divide in insurance in the insurance market between underwritten and non-underwritten cover with group cover which is cover you get through a superannuation fund it is largely not underwritten in other words you don't have to give any disclosure about your health conditions yes. whereas retail cover is underwritten and with retail cover insurers very frequently, I see, from my perception very frequently, see a way of getting out of paying, which is to say that uh, the person's failed to disclose whatever. Now, that act uh, doesn't deal well, didn't deal well, with uh, group cover, and so... Um, you know, uh, quite a bit of the work I was I've been doing has been rolling back the uh, over reliance by insurers on the on the law of non disclosure and misrepresentation. Look, in group cover, in group cover. Oh, uh, sorry, in in either in, in retail cover and in group cover where there is underwritten uh, increases in cover. All oh, right. Okay. All right. I see, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not that I see that much, but I see a little bit mm. of what you're um, talking about. Yeah. So just to, yeah. to finish about the Act, though, because in 2013, the insurance industry managed to get a revision of the Act or, uh, uh, through, which uh, cut back consumer rights considerably. And indeed, that was adversely commented on in the Hain Royal Commission as a result of which there has now been a partial re rolling back of, the, of those of those reforms. And what were those changes, particularly in the 2013 revision? Well, well for example, Section 29.3 about innocent mis misrepresentation. Yeah. Um, it, it used to be the case that you could only get your cover cancelled for innocent misrepresentation if the insurer would not have entered into a policy of life insurance with uh, the insured on, on any terms, mm. which is a harder test than fraud because with fraud, Section 29.2, you only, the insurer only has to show they wouldn't have entered into that contract with whatever loadings or the like that it has. Now, in 2013, essentially they made the two tests the same. So um, it was, it became a lot easier to um, 
show innocent misrepresentation. And they also brought in another way in which they, they, insurers could avoid claims, which is to not go through the avoidance route, but instead essentially amend the policy retrospectively, apply an exclusion, for example, retrospectively. Uh-huh. And do you think, why do you think that they were able to get those changes through? Do you think it's because there wasn't enough consumer advocates that were interested in that area of Absolutely. Law? Absolutely. Uh, but also the power of insurance. Although, you know, people confuse general insurance, you know, flood, fire mm. and, and auto with life insurance. Uh, people think generally that insurance is a good thing because... You know, you don't want the house to burn down. Yeah. But it, but this is life insurance. It's something entirely different. Mm. It's a completely different industry. And what has happened, uh, I, I said that um, insurers went into the superannuation uh, area at selling wholesale insurance big time. They underpriced it considerably because... They, they thought, well, there'd never be any claims. <laughs> <laughs> there probably wasn't for a few there years. There weren't any for a few years, but, you know, claims did come along, surprise, surprise. And as a result of that, um, the insurers in the life market made considerable losses for a good number of years. And that was one of the arguments behind the change of the law that, oh, we're losing money, you know, you've got to change the law so we don't lose money. But what has, what has happened is because of those foolish decisions made by Australian life insurers, there now is no Australian life insurance industry. There is not a single Australian life insurer left. So we all got our policies from overseas? From China, from Japan from the United States, from the United Kingdom. There is no Australian life insurance industry left. So what happens if those companies go under? Well, that's a good question, but I don't see a likelihood of that happening. Mm. Um, life insurance is a profitable industry if you if you do it right. If you price, And do you think they're pricing it better? Or? They are pricing mm-hmm. it better, yeah. Mm, for sure. Actually, going back to the 2013 year, you received the 2013 Victorian Bar Pro Bono Trophy, obviously probably not for your advocacy in, in ensuring that consumer rights were strengthened in the Insurance Contracts Act, um, for extraordinary commitment to advocacy for low-income and vulnerable consumers what was the panel in particularly impressed with? I have no idea. Um, somebody nominated me and I, I didn't really have a great deal to do with it. Mm. But the kind of work, uh, I mean, in my career I've done a good deal of social security, uh, also acting for people with mental health problems, mm. a bit of discrimination type of law, like, you know, basically for for legal centres and the like. So, and also for the um, consumer rights 
sent us out. I think it was it was that basically. So what what sort of cases have you run in the social security area? Uh, again, that was a period in time because uh, I mean. Um, there was a welfare rights centre and people were concerned about social security for a period um, when the SSAT was uh, going strong uh, people were actually concerned about the legal rights of people on social security um, but now with the collapse of the SSAT into the AAT and the problems with the AAT at the moment that really that's no longer I don't see any social security litigation happening at the moment. Do you think that's because the law's changed or that there's just not the advocates it's, to do it? Or? Well, it's it's partly because the government has changed the Social Security Act so that the, the levels of discretion that there once were no longer exist. It's, it's really... It's, it's, it's just extraordinary how hard it is to... Um, get on to disability support pension these days for people who are well. That's right. I mean, when I was when I was doing social security law, one of the issues was access to disability support pension. Mm. But the law back then and the law now is complete chalk and cheese. Yeah, it's so much tougher. Um, do you have any views on the more recent changes to the insurance law? Um. I'm particularly thinking of having to opt into insurance in some circumstances in the superannuation arena. In some circumstances, yeah. you mean well, if you if you if you're if you're less than six thousand yeah. dollars on in balance, or if you're under twenty five. Mm. Um, I mean, you've practiced in that area for a very long time. Hmm. You've seen the sort of people that are wanting to access their uh, a TPD be- benefit and the sort of money now that you're having to pay for those um, policies, do you think on the whole that's it's a good thing that what they've done or do you think that those changes have unintended consequences for the most poorest in our community? Because superannuation has certainly been, I think, the thing that's created at least some wealth um, for the for people who are quite disadvantaged. Um, my, my view on it is that I don't see a lot of problems coming to me. Now, that's not mm. to say that there aren't a lot of problems, but... Um, I, I don't see a lot of people under 25 who are disabled. Yes, you see people who, you know, crashed a motorbike or whatever, but um, to me that's not where I think the main problems are. I, I can see the arguments. I can see the arguments on both sides. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, but the argument, let's say, about people who are 25 really is, is a pricing issue. Because the, in, a, in group cover, you don't get the benefit of the, the premium being 
properly measured by the risk because it's group cover. Yeah. So you're going to pay... Uh, Under 25 person, person is going to pay a hell of a lot more than they should be, in essence. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think are the problems? You've just said that this isn't a problem. So yeah. what do you think remains? All right. Well, I, I, think the, I think the problems are... Um, around ADL cover, which is activities of daily living. Yes, okay. Mm. The, 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 the standard definition is that you're unable or unlikely to engage in, in any occupation for which you are suited by education, training or experience. In other words, it's, it's, it is insurance against loss of your career. Mm. ADL cover... Uh, provides a, a benefit only if you are unable to um, engage in two of the six acti activities of daily living. For example, you can't go to the toilet without another adult assisting you, or you can't feed yourself. Mm. Very high bar. <laughs> very, very high bar. <laughs> but the point is this, that that high bar is the bar that many, many people in certain occupations have to jump. For example, truck drivers, let's say, or let's say um, process workers or concrete workers or all sorts of different occupations uh, are, are, de are deemed by various insurers to be have, uh, have, have a special risk for the insurer. And so in group cover... Uh, what what they have is 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 a, a, a table of occupations, mm. and some of the occupations get standard cover, and some of them get ADL cover. Ah, see. So you're paying the that. same premium, and it's your employer who uh, tells does the deal with the with the fund and the insurer. And the, of course, the employer has a um, an incentive not to tell the truth, and the fund has the incentive not really to be told the truth, and the insurer doesn't really have an in, a, a, a good um, incentive to be told the truth either, because they're picking up the premiums. Mm. The person is paying the premiums for the disablement insurance, not knowing that. They only covered for ADL cover, and they only find out after they're disabled, because they put in their claim, and they you write down you know concreter, and the insurer writes back and say oh sorry that's a special risk occupation, you have have only got ADL cover and we're not going to pay you anything. That's pretty harsh. Pretty yeah. Harsh. And especially because the professions that are more likely to have only ADL cover are actually those professions or those occupations where what we would consider to be the more vulnerable in the community as well. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I think... Mm, financially vulnerable. Yeah, like, you know, long-distance truck drivers, for example. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And... Um, how did you become involved in presenting on Bench TV? <laughs> oh, again, somebody rang me up and 
it's only one thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> Somebody rang me up and asked me to talk about some case I did. It was Sharma and um, oh, yes. local government. Local government. Right. Yeah, SS Proprietary Limited. Yes. And that related to the duty of disclosure and insurance. Yes. And I think it was because of non-disclosure and um, for fraudulent misrepresentation and non-disclosure. And it yes. was... I can't... It, it, do, you, do you remember it? Well, actually... I've done two Sharma cases, and the one I've just done is is a little bit more interesting. Okay, well, tell me about because the one that you've this done. in this one, what has happened is this is the second Sharma case. These two Sharmas are completely different. people. Oh, right. they're not yeah. family members. They're completely different people called Sharma. All right, are they both against the same uh, insurer? Or no. Same? no. Okay. But uh, this one, the uh, second Sharma. The second, Sharma too. the second Sharma. Yes. Um. In, in that case, he, he was a doctor. He's mm. dead. And he uh, is, is accused not to have, to have lied to a particular insurance company. Mm. And the insurance company he is said to have lied to did not avoid the policy because he didn't make a claim. But what it ha did happen is then group cover ceased and a new insurer came along. And his cover was automatically transferred from the previous group policy to the new group policy. Mm. And then he died and a claim was made. And the new insurer said, oh, well, you lied to the previous insurer Therefore, we're going to avoid your policy, avoid your cover. Mm. Without having made any disclosure to the new... Without having made any disclosure to the new insurer. And without having been asked to make any new Without disclosure. having been asked to make any. And on what basis did they say that? Was it because of some assignment basis? No, no thought? assignment. No, no. So why did they think that? making non-disclosure to one insurer was was transferred to the new insurer. Well, I could give you a number of answers to that question. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't make much sense. So <laughs> I mean, that's a common sense one. You'd think, how could you be arguing that? Well, Even it's, me, who doesn't know much about this. It is, it is going to the... I, I don't know where we are in that piece of litigation. I think we're in the Court of Appeal or something or the full Federal Court or something. Ah, oh, so it's still ongoing. Yeah. Oh, well, let's see what happens. Um, so, But that's the kind of... Uh, that's the kind of world that uh, insureds, especially in group policies, live in. Yeah, but... Uh, they, are, they are powerless. You know, their, their cover... Is not negotiated by them. No. These these events that happen to them, like changing of insurers or insurers deciding what kind of cover they you have at the last minute. These these are things that they just don't have any control over. Is it? Can I ask you this? So, if you um, so you may think that you've got a certain cover. You might have gone and done the research as part of, you know, getting your superannuation 
and um, these the insurer changes. So you're saying that you're not necessarily uh, guaranteed that you will get the same cover not at from all. the new insurer, and no one tells you about it. Not at all. For example, there's, there's there's one policy I'm thinking of, which is which is this. Um, on on a on a certain day, uh, the fund and the insurer, who at that time were related entities, entered into a policy, which uh, which had a, had a, had a a term to the effect that if you had been insured under a previous policy, but you made a claim after the amendment of the policy then it was the amended the policy. amended policy that applied to you even though you'd become disabled under the currency of the old policy <laughs> how can they do that it just doesn't make any sense <laughs> well i mean um <laughs> Anyway, uh, so it's it's still well, it's still an interesting area of work, and it's, it's a fascinating still, area. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to ask you though. So I'm going to go away from insurance and what your practice is, and ask you how did the pandemic influence your practice? I, I only just realised that you work from home. You've always worked I, I from didn't, home. It didn't. Well, it did alter my practice. Look, mm. the practice of law for me has changed remarkably. Mm. I, I am, uh, I'm now, what, I'm nearly 70, right? So I've been at the bar now for th- uh, th- uh, 92 to now, which is what, that's 30, 30 years. years. Right, okay. So when I started, uh, I, um, if, if you took a brief for, in a, in a matter where somebody else, had signed the pleadings, you were doing the wrong thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, um, the, the I, think, I think the first thing that happened to me was I gave up my chambers after about 20 years. Um, no, perhaps about 15 years. Um, and I, I gave up my chambers for, for, for a combination of a few things. Firstly, you know, at the bar you're supposed to be collegiate and all, all that stuff I'm not. Right? I'm not really collegiate, right? You know, the other barristers, yes, I tolerate them, but they are my enemy. Um, and I think all that is rather overblown, all that collegiate stuff. Um, but the, the, the main thing that was that I was getting um, briefs from other states. And I now have a practice all around the country, which I think is pretty unusual amongst barristers. You know, I've got... A, 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 a reasonable size practice in Queensland, reasonable size practice in New South Wales, reasonable size practice in South Australia, reasonable size, a bit smaller in West Australia, big practice in Victoria. Mm. Um, and I was also living in New South Wales and Victoria at the same time. So I had two 
offices, one at home and one in New South Wales. From So from New South Wales, I, I could drive to Brisbane and I could fly to Perth or I could, mm. whatever. So I was doing... Yeah. So my practice changed because I was practising interstate, because I was flying everywhere uh, and because uh, of email, but also, main, also because uh, instead of the library that one always had, nobody has libraries anymore. They're all gone. It's all on the, it's all on the electronic. And so that pra- changed my practice very considerably. Uh, you know, I have a big appearance practice, but I also have a, a very big paperwork practice, um, as you can imagine. And it was quite challenging try- working out doing all these paperwork practices in different states because they have very different cultures. Now, you, you, I think you're from now from Brisbane. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a particular view of the way in which the Brisbane courts operate, which is quite different to the, let's say, the New South Wales courts or the Victorian courts. Or... So what are the differences? Uh, well, obviously, there are, there are paperwork differences, but mm. the principal difference in Queensland, in my view, is that um, it's a much more conservative environment. And they regard themselves as being much more black-letter lawyers, mm. and they they don't uh, and, and they they're very much more rigid in the way in the way in which they re- require appearances. So it's not only the paperwork; it's also the culture. You have to yes. you have to yeah. get yourself across the culture of the particular state. So yeah. So you asked me how the pandemic changed. Well, I had already been through all of that by the time the pandemic came along. So what the pandemic did for me was it stopped me flying. And now my practice is totally on the internet. Ah, so you're not flying much anymore. No. Even when you you can do a lot of your appearance work online still. Uh, All of my appearance work, I I haven't done a a live appearance for like since the pandemic began, apart from the fact that like three weeks ago I flew to Brisbane, did a couple of things up there. Do you miss it? Look, I do not. I I think that I do a lot of mediations, mm. and I think they work well online. Mm. What do you think though? For uh, this is this is actually a big discussion at the moment in farm debt mediations, and there's been a real push for um, some mediators. Um, think it will be it's okay that all of the mediations are pushed online and we I don't I have a different view particularly that's because you're a Queenslander you see Queenslanders have a very (laughs) different view about um, online as opposed to live mediations in the rest of the country we think they're fine Queenslanders don't (laughs) like them I think it's because clients don't like them. No, I don't think that's right. A lot of my clients prefer being at home because they're in their own environment. They don't have to walk into some big city office. They don't have to. They don't have to go to the city. They don't have to go into some big city office. Uh, they they're not they're not under threat by you know men in suits. Mm, it's interesting. The farm debt mediations are usually done where the farmer is, so well, that's, that's different. different. Yes. So they're not. They might be going into 
a um, more regional centre. Yes. So they may be going into the regional centre, but they're not flying into mm. um, Brisbane generally. They're yeah. all in the regions, done in the regions. And we sort of have, I, I have, I have a view that it's worked very well for farmers because they feel a lot more comfortable. I, I can see that farmers might. Mm. The farmers generally uh, know what they want. Mm. They're, they're not backwards and coming forwards. And one of the things that I also think that is is different about that is one of the concerns that I have about technology is that when you do have a mediation where people are in the same rooms, for example, they can't be doing anything else. And particularly in, say, a farm debt mediation where you're just so, where you want those people who are coming along from the lenders to be able to make decisions and really listen and engage with the farmer to come to some solutions. I I do have my and facing those farmers as well and being able to say to them, well, either to say we're not going to make any concessions, um, I think it's very powerful if they have to actually face that person in person. Well, look, mm. it may well be that in a particular instance like that one, live is better. Mm. But, you know, I've done a number of trials online. And you really like it? Yeah, it's fine. It's not, it's not a problem. It's a, it's a great thing to have that different perspective. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. So I'm going to ask you a few other questions. The one question that I always ask is, being a barrister and obtaining briefs is very much based on having good relations with the solicitors that um, give us the work, give you the work. How do you, how have you developed those relationships over the years and how do you keep them? Okay, interesting. Um, I love my solicitors. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for them and um, I think the reason they like me is because I'm flexible. They can ring me up. Uh, I don't charge them for every piece of work. Uh, if they've got something they want to discuss, they can do that. Um, I tell them the truth. Um, and, yeah, I respect them. I think that's my, that's my formula, if it's a formula. Yeah, and it's... And, it, and how did you... Div- uh, so... I suppose the thing is what you're saying is you might have somebody that refers a brief and you really work to make sure that you have that flexibility and that keeps them coming back to you over the long term. Because some of your solicitors, like um, somebody like John Beryl, who, I, who I've also interviewed, um, you've been working together with him now for close to 30 years, wouldn't it be? Would be. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Is there, before we finish, we've been talking for more than an hour. Okay. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or say before we finish? Uh, You're the one asking the questions. Well, I just want to... Where's my lunch? (laughs) Where's my dinner? (laughs) No, it's always with lunch, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But... 
I'm not providing the lunch. I'm actually uh, having dinner with people, which is delightful. Thank you so... Well, thank you, Paul. I really do appreciate the time uh, this evening. Um, If you want to find out more about um, Paul, there are show notes with each of my episodes, including contact details for each of my guests on my website, www.lorettacreek.com. Please drop me a line if you have any questions or know of someone who may be interested in being interviewed for this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye, friendlies. Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website, www.loretacrete.com.